This is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke. And immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God, and fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord is with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our forefathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of of the tender mercy of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us, from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. The Gospel of the Lord. Lord I invite you to be seated. Well, my name is Morgan, and I'm the associate pastor here. And tonight is our second Sunday of Advent, and we are focusing on the life of John the Baptist together. And I would like to pray this prayer over us as we begin. Almighty God, by whose providence your servant John the Baptist was wonderfully born and sent to prepare the way of your Son, our Savior, by preaching repentance, make us so to follow his teaching and holy life that we may truly repent, boldly rebuke vice, patiently suffer for the sake of truth, and proclaim the coming of Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Years ago, when I was in college, I had to take a PE course in order to graduate from college, so I took badminton with several of my friends, as one does. And there was one day where we had an especially intense game of badminton. We were tied, and then one team got ahead, and then we got tied up again, and then the other team got ahead, and it was back and forth and back and forth. People were bobbing and darting and running hard and diving on the gym floor. It was one of those kinds of games of badminton. (laughs) The other team had just served, and my friend, who was pretty far from where the birdie was going to land, decided to dive for it. And so like in slow motion, he just does this dive, tries to swing, hits it, and it goes over the net and he falls really hard onto the ground. And he didn't pop up as fast as he normally did. So the other team, they, they just hit the birdie where he was and it fell to the ground and they scored sadly. My friend just sat there and he was writhing in pain. And so we got him up, we stood him up, and then 
he tried to play through another round, but the pain was just too much because he had popped his shoulder out of joint. Now, apparently this wasn't the first time that this happened to my friend. So he looked at me, and even though he was sore, he sort of smirked and said, Morgan, I'm about to do something crazy, and I don't want you to freak out, but I'm going to yell really loud, and don't worry, it's going to be okay. And so he walks over to this wall of bleachers that are vertically you know, pushed against the wall, and he takes a few steps back. And then he sprints straight at the bleachers headlong and runs right into it with his shoulder and just yells. And everyone is freaking out, trying to figure out what just happened. And as he falls over, he's now on the ground, crying, breathing deeply. And we're all wondering if he's okay. And after about 30 seconds of this heavy breathing and crying, he stands up and he's fine. It was the weirdest thing. So in some mysterious and terrifying way, that popped his shoulder back into place. I don't recommend that, but that's what he did. (laughs) It's John the Baptist, who we read about this evening. He is a lot like that excruciating pain that tells you that things are out of joint right now. For many of us this evening, things feel out of sorts. Things just don't feel right in this season, this evening as we come. It's been a long week. And I know a lot of people are coming with weariness and with sorrows. And then we're here on the second Sunday of Advent where we're focusing on peace. But we feel weariness and we feel anxiety. So just as John the Baptist reminded Israel that things were out of joint, but there was one who would come to bring peace. So we feel the pain of being unsettled, the out of jointness of life. And we're invited into this watching and waiting for the prince who brings peace. John had entered into this long line of prophets that came before him. If you were to look back about 600 years in the book of Jeremiah, the leaders in that time were complacent. Jeremiah actually says to the leaders, from the prophets to the priests, they're all frauds. They offer superficial treatments for my people's mortal wound. They give assurances of peace when there is no peace. After being taken into exile into Babylon, there was a new generation that rose up in Babylon, and God brought them back by the hand of the Persians. And then there was a new generation in Israel, and they began to grow complacent as well, fronting their need for comfort beyond their need to worship. And so God sent new prophets. He sent Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. But ultimately, that new generation would experience the same feeling of exile again as God put rulers over them that didn't fear the Lord. And eventually, one would do something so awful as to sacrifice a pig in the temple. Or all throughout the reign of these Greeks and these Romans, God sent people to tell his people to come back to covenant. God sent somebody named uh, Metaphias who was the father of the Maccabees. He sent Judas Maccabeus. He sent a woman uh, and her seven sons to call Israel back to covenant faithfulness. And then John the Baptist comes in this line of prophets. He becomes the ultimate example of this, this new Elijah calling people, the populace and the rulers, to recognize the pain of Israel's life being out of joint. 
So John's prophetic voice, it invites us to wander in the desert. It invites us to wonder at God's glory and to ask God if the things that we're doing, the things that we're choosing, the thoughts that we have, and our rhythms are sourced in the deliverance that Jesus brings. Last week, we heard Zechariah's story, John's father. We heard about the miracle that John was conceived. Elizabeth and Zechariah had felt a lot of pain together. They knew that things weren't right. They were unable to have a child, and they felt the discouragement. Each time, their friends were asking them, when is the child coming from you? And the tension of feeling abandoned by God in that. Things were not as they had hoped for in their family life. We heard about Elizabeth and Zechariah and how they received a message from the angel Gabriel, promising them that there was going to be a child that would be born. And then Zechariah doesn't believe it and questions the angel. And then he's not able to speak throughout Elizabeth's entire pregnancy. Zechariah, Elizabeth, and their friends and their family, once John is born, they're gathered together on the eighth day after he's born. And Zechariah still can't speak. So that was the day that they would circumcise this, this child and they would give him a name, as was the custom. And the relatives, they, they expected fully that this child would be named after his father or else somebody close in the family. But Zechariah and Elizabeth realized what the angel had told them to do. And Zechariah had already experienced what it means to disobey the angel the first time, so he's not going to do that again. And so he needed God's deliverance. The relatives and the neighbors are there, and they just kind of seem blissfully unaware. They seem aloof to the pain that Elizabeth and Zechariah had gone through, one, in resigning themselves to the reality of never being able to have a child, but two, then when they are with child, Zechariah can't tell any of his friends about it. The friends and neighbor and, and the neighbors, they seem insensitive towards Elizabeth when Elizabeth suggests a name. They say, you know, Elizabeth's gone crazy. We always name our kids after the father or about around somebody who's close in the family. Who do these people think that they are breaking our family tradition? And so they turn to Zechariah, hoping that, you know, this priest, this spiritual leader in the family is going to do what they want for, for them. And in obedience, Zechariah says, no, his name is John. And there's an irony in John's name. God will have compassion. The name reminds the people that God will have compassion. But up to this point, compassion seems pretty veiled. We encounter a barren woman. We encounter a mute man. And then we encounter insensitive relatives. And so John's naming points to the importance of his office as a prophet and away from the importance of his family name. His prophetic ministry began in God's plan that was announced by an angel, and then it continued in the womb of Elizabeth, and then it shows the turbulent nature of his prophetic office before he can even speak a word. Like the relatives in the story, and like Israel, we often seek for God's compassion, and it's going to come, though it might surprise us when it does. So Zechariah's tongue is freed, it's loosed. And he speaks, and the friends and the relatives marvel, they wonder. And in their wonder and in their astonishment, they ask, what is this child going to become? When we wonder at the work of God, 
we begin asking questions that we need to ask in order to see God's compassion more clearly. Wonder is often that first step that we need towards repentance. It's this recognition that the thoughts that I have, the things that I'm doing, don't quite line up with the majesty of who God is. And it's that recognition that we've missed God's heart in some matter in our inadequacy and that we've made his community, the church, less reflect who he is in his relationship with his creation. And so Zechariah's mouth is opened. He needs God's deliverance. And he speaks this beautiful poetic prophecy that expresses Israel's hope of the Messiah who's coming and John's role in pointing out who that Messiah is going to be. And I'll admit, this week was a struggle to think about John the Baptist when I was thinking about peace, because John the Baptist wasn't a particularly peaceful person, calling people brood of vipers, asking them who warned them to flee from the wrath to come. And he didn't bring a lot of peace in his lifetime, right? Or, or did he? From Zechariah's prophecy, when we read verses 76 and 77, he says, And you, my child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you'll go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Remember earlier, we talked about the Israelites being in exile and about 400 or 500 years before John, there was also Isaiah chapter 40, the prophet speaks. And, and in that time of exile, the prophet says about himself that he's a voice crying out in the wilderness telling people to prepare the way of the Lord. So the picture there is of the people of God building a highway from Babylon all the way back to Jerusalem for the reigning triumphant king to come back on that highway. And so what's beautiful is that poetic image is refigured in the person of John the Baptist. John would take up a life of austerity. He would go out to the wilderness wearing camel's hair, eating locusts and wild honey in the wilderness. And people would literally go out there to the wilderness to hear him proclaiming these things about the kingdom of God because they have Isaiah 40 in the back of their heads. His austerity and his prophetic ministry speak peace and they speak comfort because he points people to Jesus who is the one who is gonna bring peace the one who comes in triumphal procession, reminding us that this highway, the highway of God, is built by those who have contrite hearts. As people go to the wilderness and they're baptized and they renew their covenant with God and their sins are forgiven, they're going to grow in the experience of what it means to be saved, to be delivered. They're going to grow in that understanding of what it means to be delivered from this present evil age with its anxieties, its weariness, and it's out of jointness, albeit probably in ways they didn't anticipate. As people came and they listened to John, they were astonished. They were able to look back and evaluate the rhythms of their villages and their towns and mainstream Jewish culture. And it's these, these people who are the contrite of heart that build the highway for the king of peace. It's not those who are jockeying per, for position and for power among the elite in Jerusalem. And I think in our context, we're pretty familiar with unreflective busyness in an area. 
So one of the things, I'm from California, and a friend of mine who is also from California and moved here told me this sort of joke where he said in California, people work hard to play hard, but in the D.C. metro area, they work hard to tell you how hard they're working. Um, Now, to be sure, California has its own whole set of idols, right? But uh, the liturgical rhythms and cultural rhythms of the D.C. metro area don't often create the highway that we need for the king of peace to ride along in triumphal procession. And so we need to go to the wilderness to punctuate those days and those weeks with moments of reflection and to acknowledge the, the pain of things feeling out of joint rather than trying to muscle our way through it. The recognition of unmet desire creates space for the Holy Spirit to speak, to reframe. Those habitual acts of renewal and dependence are the life of repentance which paves the way, the highway for Jesus to bring his peace. The peace of the Messiah reigns in our hearts as we learn obedience and as we learn trust and grow in our ability to reimagine and reframe thoughts and lives in the light of God's glory. So we talked about Isaiah 40, which begins with this promise. It says, comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. But then we're tempted to listen to those voices in Jeremiah 6, those empty prophetic voices that speak peace, but there's no substance there. As we repent and as we turn towards God, we discover his peace in our deliverance. The discomfort of John's voice, it speaks again and again to us when the Holy Spirit reminds us that things are out of joint right now. Things right now are not as they should ultimately be. And we need space to wander in the desert and to wonder at God's glory so that we can ask God if our choices and if our thoughts, the the rhythms that we have stem from the deliverance that he brings. And then we need to wait and we need to watch for his deliverance. And I think the peace that's found in this passage is that the discomfort and the unmet expectations that we have can actually become God's vehicles of grace and compassion to us. They're the places of tears, the places of reevaluation where God speaks, that he reminds us that there's nothing on earth that can ultimately deliver. It's in that turning and trust away from cultural liturgical rhythms, from the idols of our hearts, and this turning towards God in dependence on him with contrite hearts that we build the highway for our King of Peace, our God with us, Emmanuel. I want to, as we close, pray this prayer over us um, from a theologian I appreciate named Walter Brueggemann. We make a pause amid many voices, some innocent, some seductive, some violent, some coercive, some forgiven and genuine, some not. Amid this cacophony that pulls us in many directions, we have these old voices of your prophets. These voices attest to your fierce self, your severe summons, your generous promise, your abiding presence. Give us good ears. Perchance you have a word for us tonight. Give us grace and courage to listen, to answer, 
to care and to rejoice that we may be more fully your people. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.